The title of this morning's message is A New and Different Kind of High Priest. This morning, I want to talk to you about Jesus' qualifications as our great high priest. Jesus is a new and different kind of high priest, and he's from a new and different kind of priestly order, all of which was perfectly orchestrated by our Father. I love how he does stuff. It just kind of goes, ta-da, see? That's me. (laughs) Throughout the scriptures, he foretold and foreshadowed the new covenant with a new and different kind of high priest. All things really have become new. I know I've been saying that a lot lately. All things have really become new, even as the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 and 18. I have it for you in the Passion Translation. Now, if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he has become an entirely new creation. I love the word entirely. (laughs) I'm not partly new. (laughs) I'm not partly saved. I'm entirely a new creation. All that is related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. And God has made all things new and reconciled us unto himself and given us the ministry of reconciling others to God. I like how the Passion Translation brings out the idea that the old things, (laughs) the old and original things, (laughs) have vanished. Yes, that includes our old man, but it says the old order as well. That's important (laughs) because Christians are really tempted to add new covenant to old, thinking that that's what will cause God to bless them or approve of them. So it's important that we understand the entire order of the old covenant has vanished. (laughs) The old covenant has become obsolete, all of it, even the Ten Commandments. Did I just say that? (laughs) Now, am I saying that we shouldn't live in such a way as it looks like we're keeping the Ten Commandments? Yes, we should. Because the Bible says if we live in love, that's what it's going to look like. Okay, but am I doing it so God will love me? Am I doing it because I think this is how I get blessed? Am I doing it because I think I have to earn something from God? If I do, I've just added Old Covenant to New. God has reconciled us to himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is because of the finished works of Jesus. That means he did it all. Nothing else can be added to it. If I want to be blessed, it's because of Jesus. I'm not blessed because I give. I'm not blessed because I behave. I am blessed because of Jesus. Now, he will tell me to behave myself (laughs) because he doesn't want me to hurt myself. (laughs) But I am blessed. I am already blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. I cannot become any more blessed. Now, I can enjoy more of the blessing by behaving myself, (laughs) but I can't get any more blessed. God has restored all of mankind back to his divine favor and friendship by paying their sin debt for them through the cross. So mankind is now invited to freely come to God the Father through faith in God the Son, through the new order of the new covenant. The new covenant is a totally new and different way of having a relationship with God as compared with the old covenant. But it is through the old covenant types and shadows that we often gain a better understanding of what Jesus has accomplished. It was kind of the training ground. (laughs) We can see this truth in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. I want you to notice he's talking about other people's opinions of how you're serving God or worshiping God. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now, he's not saying don't do those things, and he's not saying you need to do those things. He says, whatever you're doing, (laughs) don't let somebody else judge 
whether it's appropriate or not. That's something that God tells us, not something that somebody else gets to tell us. Verse 17. Why? <laughs> Why should we not let them judge us whether we do or not do those things? Because these are a shadow. That's all that they were. They were a shadow of things to come. But the substance, the reality, belongs to Christ. All of these particular requirements that are mentioned here were actually designed as prophetic pictures that Christ would one day fulfill in reality. And the reality is that Christ is our holiness. Christ is my holiness. He has made me holy. Whether or not I keep kosher regarding food laws, it's no longer necessary as a means of being acceptable to God. Now, under the old covenant, yep, you were not acceptable if you were eating bacon. But now I have Jesus and I can eat all the bacon I want. <laughs> because it doesn't disqualify me. See, under the old covenant, it disqualified you if you ate bacon. Now you're not qualified to receive the blessing. But now I'm blessed whether I eat bacon or I don't eat bacon. It's a good thing. Also, keeping the festivals and the Sabbaths were also prophetic pictures of a greater reality that we find in Christ. Also, Christ fulfilled the mandatory Passover festival. It was mandatory. You weren't blessed if you didn't go to Passover. It was required by God. But Christ fulfilled that because that was just a picture, just the classroom. But in reality, the Passover lamb is Christ. The Passover lamb that brought deliverance from all the power of the enemy is Christ. It was only ever a picture. Christ is also our complete Sabbath rest. One of the favorite laws of the church is thou shalt keep the Sabbath. And we don't. The Sabbath is Saturday. <laughs> and God never changed it. He never said, you're Christians, the new Sabbath is Sunday. Never said that. Now, can we keep the Sabbath on Saturday? We can. <laughs> Do we have to? No. Can we keep Sabbath on Sunday? Yes. But Sabbath to us could also be Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday. Paul says, you want to keep one day special? Have at it. You want to make them all special? Have at it. It's not a matter of your blessing or your acceptance. Jesus is our complete Sabbath rest. In other words, they were not allowed to do anything. No work of any kind was allowed. You had to rest in God's goodness. Don't you be making food. <laughs> because if you did, you weren't blessed. Now we can make food all day long and eat bacon all day long. <laughs> because we're already blessed in and through our Sabbath rest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only his works have merited God's salvation and favor. Our works do not take away from Christ's salvation and nothing adds to it. Now I can make the most of this relationship <laughs> by having relationship and letting him lead me. Yes, we do a Passover service about every two years. We are not more blessed or more favored because we have a Passover service. You can do the things you see in the scripture without it becoming a rule or an obligation. Because in the Passover service, we do not celebrate Moses. <laughs> because we recognize it was all just a picture. And the reality is Christ. Now, it wasn't that the Jewish believers had to stop doing these things or increase doing these things. But they needed to understand that all of these things were actually designed to point them forward to a true fulfillment in Christ. And in Christ, all of the requirements of the law have been met. That's why he was sinless. <laughs> he had to fulfill the law. He had to keep the law. He had to show everyone it could be done. <laughs> And he's the only one that ever did it. Because he was the only one who was perfect. But he fulfilled all the law. The position of high priest under the old covenant 
was a picture. It was the training ground. It was the classroom. And I'm glad. I thank you, Jesus. I didn't live back then. <laughs> Hard classroom lessons there. <laughs> but his position in his ministry back then was also a type and shadow that pointed to a greater fulfillment through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that Jesus is now our great high priest. And this reality was so big to the Jews of Jesus' day that he couldn't grasp it. See, they started as believing in Jesus as Messiah, but at some point, <laughs> you gotta believe in Jesus as Savior. <laughs> and they had questions. They had been well-trained. Who is this Jesus? How is he our priest? What's going on? The idea that Jesus could be our great high priest was so big and so much better that the Jews had a hard time even beginning to imagine that it could be true. Which is probably why somebody wrote the book of Hebrews. Because <laughs> people had questions. The scholars can only guess that who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some guessed that it was Apollos. Some guessed that it was Paul. And some guessed that it was even Priscilla. Which would explain why the book is not signed. <laughs> because Jewish men would not want to read a book written by a woman. So that could explain why there's no authorship declared in the book. The book of Hebrews specifically explains how it is that Jesus could legally be our great high priest and how much better he is at being our great high priest. He is our personal representative to God and he's so much better than any Levitical priest could ever have been. And Jesus accomplished as our great priest such a great salvation that was so big and so foreign to the Jewish mind. Even though they were, the first 10 years, they're practically all Jews. So there was a lot of training going on <laughs> because how you go from the law and the strictness into the grace and empowerment. It was hard, which is why there's lots of mixture. <laughs> and sometimes that's us. We read the whole Bible, we know it's the whole story, but we want to think it's all equal. And it's not. So the writer of Hebrews begins the book with the revelation of the fullness of Christ's true identity. One scholar said, it's not like the other books because it kind of starts off like an essay, kind of turns into a sermon, and then ends like a letter. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, this is, to me, kind of a funny way to start this book. It's almost like they thought, well, I don't have to explain who Jesus really is to get anywhere. <laughs> we got to start with the person of Jesus Christ and work from there, which is what, of course, the author did. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. Throughout our history, God has spoken to our ancestors by his prophets in many different ways. Now, who is the hour? The hour is not us. <laughs> the hour is the Jews then. <laughs> our history. God has spoken to our ancestors by his prophets in many different ways. The revelation he gave them was only a fragment at the time, building one truth upon another. I love that. Because that's what they had. They had pieces and parts. <laughs> they couldn't look forward and actually put all the pieces together and see the true picture. Verse 2, but to us living in these last days, and those are not the last days of the world, obviously, <laughs> that was the last days of the old covenant era. But in these last days, God now speaks to us openly in the language of a son, the appointed heir of everything. For through him, God created the panorama of all things and all time. The sun is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor, the exact expression of God's true nature. That means when we're reading through this Bible, we find things that don't look like Jesus. <laughs> we have to go, no, this is what God always wanted. That's not what God wanted, like the old covenant. God never wanted the old covenant, but he knew that he had to train them 
for what would be coming next. Otherwise, they wouldn't have understood. Who is this man on a cross? Well, there were lots of men on a cross. <laughs> he had to train them up. So Jesus is God's mirror image. He looks like the Father. He holds the universe together and expands it by the mighty power of his spoken word. He accomplished for us the complete cleansing of sins. And then he took his seat on the highest throne at the right hand of the majestic one. He is infinitely greater than angels, for he inherited a rank and a name far greater than theirs. When I was reading this, I thought, well, she, he or she took a left turn right there. <laughs> angels? What? What does that have to do with anything? So he or she begins this book describing Jesus as God's son. His priesthood is based on him being God's son. And as we see there, he is God's equal in creation. And he is God's equal in power and authority. And he sits in the equal place at the Father's right hand. That's the point. He is equal. He is himself God. Now, of course, the fact that he's sitting <laughs> is all important because under the Levitical priesthood, priests never sat down because their work was never complete, because their sacrifices couldn't accomplish a complete cleansing of sins. Their sacrifices could only provide a temporary covering, which is why God didn't like it. So in these opening verses, the author pretty much establishes what this book is all about. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is better. <laughs> and his priesthood is better. And his sacrifice is better. And his law is better. Everything about the new covenant is better. Because everything, everything became new. Not just us. So this morning, we're going to look into the book of Hebrews, specifically regarding Christ's priesthood. But when we study a book of the Bible, the first thing we have to do is put it into its historical context <laughs> and then apply audience relevance. So as always, this book was not written to us, but for us and for our learning. It was written in their last days, not our last days. It was the last days of the Old Covenant era, and they hadn't let go of it. That's why this book was so important. They hadn't let go <laughs> of their Jewish heritage. So it was very hard for them to not go to temple when everybody else is going to temple, and it was hard for them. So this was why this book was needed, so that they could legitimately say, I don't have to do that. This is better. <laughs> Not too long after this book was written was A.D. 70. They put it mm, anywhere between three and five years before A.D. 70, when everything was demolished. So this letter was written before then and written to all Hebrews. It doesn't say Christian Hebrews. <laughs> it doesn't say those Hebrews that are saved, those Hebrews who only worship Jesus, because there are probably some there who were still worshiped in Jesus and worshiping Yahweh in two different orders, which is why this book was written, so that they could let go of what was old and embrace all of the newness. <laughs> so when the temple was destroyed, there was about a million people who perished, they're guessing. That means there was a million people that could have been reached with the book of Hebrews because it was written specifically for them because this audience included all of those people who died. This book was written to Hebrews, both saved Hebrews and unsaved Hebrews. And that's important when you're trying to interpret some of the things that they say in the book of Hebrews. It can get kind of tricky because you can't always tell who the writer is aiming at. <laughs> are they aiming at the unsaved one or are they aiming at the saved one? It was written so that both of them could embrace the truth of who Jesus was, that Jesus really was the Son of God. Because all of the audience believed in the one true and living God, and see, that's why it makes it kind of tricky. <laughs> but not all of the audience was convinced about God's plan of salvation, and that its reality was always foretold. 
That's why the Old Testament is important for Christians because it's foretold. <laughs> we can go, how did, how did they understand this? How did they change their mind? How did Jesus do that? Well, God prepared them with the classroom of the Old Covenant. He sticks things in the Old Covenant. And you're like, what is that doing there? <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? It meant nothing to the Old Covenant people, but it means so much to the New. And of course, those Jewish people who had believed on Jesus, they have legitimate questions. The New Testament hadn't been written. How do we understand what Jesus did? How do we understand that He's our high priest. And does it matter? <laughs> how can Jesus, this was the big one, how can Jesus really be more important than Moses? That was a pretty strong thing to say to a Jew. <laughs> Imagine saying that to a Jew today. Jesus is so much better than Moses. If they had a gun, they might shoot you. <laughs> because that was just so not on their radar. Who is this Jesus exactly? Why is Jesus and this new covenant really any better than the old covenant? Why can't we just mix them? <laughs> Which the church is still doing. <laughs> Many were probably at a crossroads. They believed on Jesus, but persecution from the government because Christianity was illegal. And then you have all that social pressure where your mother-in-law is telling you, <laughs> you need to be a good Jewish girl. <laughs> you need to be a good Jewish boy. What are you doing running out of this Jesus? Are you nuts? <laughs> so persecution, socially, financially, in every arena. They were Jews who became Christians, and they no longer fit anywhere. They didn't fit in the world, but they didn't fit in Judaism. I mean, their whole social order, they didn't fit. So they have questions. <laughs> the persecution was becoming really fierce, and people were dying because they were Christians. So they're thinking, well, same God, God, one and only true and living God. Same, same. So what difference does it make? <laughs> God did something different. God did something better. You see, the Jews didn't think they had a sin problem. They thought they had a Roman problem. And this Messiah is going to come and take care of the Roman problem. And God's like, you're not on the right radar. <laughs> So they thought if it's easier and healthier and safer to go back to the old ways, then why not just mix a little Jesus with your Judaism? Right? Same, same. Or is it? <laughs> After all, Jesus is just one man. He's just one prophet. He might not really even be the Messiah. He's just one guy. But Judaism, Moses and Aaron and Joshua and all the prophets, look how big and glorious Judaism is. And then you have this Messiah on a cross. Doesn't seem quite so glorious. <laughs> is this one man on a cross really all that much better than all of that that came before? And of course, the author's reply is a resounding, yes! Jesus is better. He's better than all of that <laughs> because he is literally the son of God, God's equal. <laughs> he is God in himself and he sits far above all creation. <laughs> he, through Jesus, has created all of creation. He is the eternal God wrapped up in human flesh. But you couldn't really tell that by looking at Jesus. <laughs> So at first glance, we might wonder why the author brings up the subject of angels. That Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Look how glorious he is. And he's not an angel. Huh? <laughs> the Jews were taught that there is only one true and living God. Only one. Then how can he be two? 
Now the word one in the Old Covenant means one united. But they said, God is one. Therefore, God can't be two. Therefore, we have to have it come up with a better explanation. <laughs> because we don't understand what he was talking about. Now it messes up what God's talking about. <laughs> so to answer that question, ideas began springing up. You know, like Jesus can't be God because God is one. Therefore, Jesus must be an angelic creature sent to do God's will. So he must be either angelic or he might be half God, half human. Or they say they started to come up with ideas to explain the fact that God can't be two or even three in one. And they come up with their own ideas. In fact, the Jehovah Witnesses believe to this day that Jesus is the archangel Michael. I don't know what they do with the book of Hebrews. <laughs> Specifically, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was foreshadowed and predestined from the beginning. God ordered all of Israel to get them to the place where the Messiah could come and undo what Adam and Eve did. This is why the author has to address this. Jesus isn't less than God. Jesus isn't a created being. He is himself God, the one true and living God who loved mankind so much that he said, I'll become like you so you can become like me. So the author uses scripture. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is. <laughs> Old Testament scripture. <laughs> the author has to prove to those he's ministering to where he's getting his information. How do we know? that Jesus is God. Well, for starters, the author uses Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. He quotes Psalms 2, verse 7, which says this. For God has never said to any angel, see, he's got to address it. <laughs> All the way back there, he says, they're going to think I'm an angel. <laughs> so he tells them way ahead of time. God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. You are my favorite son. Today, I have fathered you. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So this author is saying, everything you need to know was written about. You can find it if you have eyes to see. And of course, Psalm 2, it was believed overall to be a messianic psalm. So the fact that this author can prove that Christ is the son of God through their scriptures enables them to open their eyes and believe that that is exactly who he was. And then in verse 6 of Hebrews, the author quotes Deuteronomy 32, 43. But it's quoted from the oldest Hebraic scriptures. This is kind of one of those funny ones. When the Jewish uh, scholars translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, that was called the Septuagint, they did the best they could. <laughs> but sometimes you find things that are different that these scholars interpreted differently from the original. This particular verse speaks to that. Hebrews 1, verse 6. And again, when he brought forth his firstborn son into the world, let all my angels bow down before him and kiss him in worship. Now, if you go look up Deuteronomy 32, 43, it won't say that. It won't even mention anything about angels. It talks about Gentiles. But you'll find that uh, the word Gentiles is in italics, which means it's not there. <laughs> so this is translated from the original Hebrew text. And he says, let all my angels bow down and worship him. He's the one. In other words, who do we worship? God one true and living God. So the Son is the one true and living God, and he's not an angel. <laughs> Good angels only worship the one true and living God. <laughs> angels don't <laughs> worship other angels. <laughs> but in Deuteronomy 32, 43, it ends like this. And I, again, I love how God hides the new covenant in the old. This is the last line of 32, 43 in the New King James. 
He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Who will? The Son. The Son. We can find the truth hidden in the Old Testament. This was just a little hint, a little extra hint (laughs) for the Jewish people about God's son actually being who he said he was. So one of the ways that our great high priest is better than the Levitical priest is that our high priest is literally God. He is God's son. He is equal to the father. He is one with the father. And as a great high priest, he revealed the reality of who the father really was and is. That's part of why God came as a human. (laughs) I want you to know who I really am. And we can see this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Then Jesus exclaimed, Father, thank you, for you are Lord, the supreme ruler over heaven and earth, and you have hidden the great salvation of your authority from those who are proud and wise in their own eyes. Instead, you have shared it with these who humble themselves. Yes, Father, your plan delights your heart as you've chosen this way to extend your kingdom. How is he going to extend his kingdom? By giving it to anybody who wants it. (laughs) By giving it to those who have become like trusting children. You have entrusted me with all that you are and all that you have. No one fully and intimately knows the Son except the Father. And no one fully and intimately knows the Father except the Son. But the Son is able to unveil the Father to anyone he chooses. Verse 28. Are you weary, carrying a heavy burden? Then come to me, and I will refresh your life. For I am your oasis. I am your rest. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who was he talking to? The Jews who were very busy at working (laughs) according to their covenant. Simply join your life with mine. Learn my ways and you'll discover that I'm gentle. What? God is gentle? He's humble. Really? Easy to please. I wish I had known that. (laughs) 40 years ago, when I was working really hard at trying to be pleasing. (laughs) You'll find refreshment and rest in me. For all that I require of you will be pleasant and easy to bear. This is important, because one of the high priest's primary responsibilities was to represent God to the people, which is why the priests had so many restrictions regarding what they could and could not do. They had to represent God in all of his holiness and righteousness to the people. And as Jesus just said, he was the only one who could actually fulfill this in reality. Therefore, he would be the only one qualified to be a true high priest. What I like about this is though the high priests weren't allowed to touch dead people, not even in their own family. If somebody died, they weren't allowed to touch them. But Jesus our great high priest, he went around touching dead people (laughs) and raising them from the dead because God doesn't like death. (laughs) He likes life. (laughs) Also, a high priest was required to represent the people to God. We can see this truth in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. And I have it for the American Standard Version. For not unto angels did he subject the world to come, whereof we speak. But one hath somewhere testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? This is David's actual psalm. Thou made him a little lower than the angels. Who? Us. Mankind. Adam and Eve. (laughs) Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hand. This is when God created Adam and Eve. He says, It's all yours. I want you to rule and reign, have power and authority in my name. Go at it. And they gave it up. (laughs) Verse 8. Thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he subjected all things unto himself, he left nothing that is not subject to him. 
but now we see not yet all things subjected to him, to mankind. And that's because Adam and Eve gave the power and authority to Satan. And that's why Jesus had to come to restore that back to all of mankind. God hasn't changed his mind. He wants to rule the world through Christ. Verse 9. But we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus was already perfect. He was sinless. He's not talking about improving Jesus. (laughs) You can't improve Jesus. But he made him complete. He supplied him with something with knowledge that he would need. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified, Jesus and his believers, are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I find that astounding. <laughs> this is my this is my my believer, this is my child, this is this is part of me. I'm so proud of them. <laughs> but we have been, have been, have already been made holy, set apart unto God. We are sanctified and we are of him. That's why he can say, you look just like me in your spirit. I know who you are in your spirit and I'm not ashamed of who you are. Verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, speaking of the Lord, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God hath given me. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood. He also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Death only has power where there is sin. So Jesus didn't have to deal with Satan directly. Satan wasn't nailed to the cross but sin was. He only had access because of sin, and sin brought death. Satan uses that to his advantage. (laughs) But because in Christ we have no sin, Satan has no dominion over us, not even in death. Death is just a door that we get to walk through one day, but death has no sting. Uh, Verse 15, and might deliver all of them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, the bondage of fear. For verily, not to angels doth he give help, but he giveth help to the seed of Abraham. All those who by faith in Jesus have become heirs of Abraham. Again, we're talking to Jews. (laughs) Galatians 3.29 bears this out. And if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Doesn't mean you have to be Jewish. Just means you need to have Jesus. Verse 17, wherefore it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. I love the word propitiation because I was always trying to satisfy God with my works. I was always trying to satisfy God by trying hard. I was trying to satisfy God by staying up all night to pray. I was serious <laughs> about pleasing God. <laughs> Never knowing that staying up all night praying was good for me, but it didn't change my father at all. He was always never ashamed of me. He was always pleased with who I was. God has made satisfaction for all the sins of all the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are being tempted. Again, speaking of the high priest. A high priest is supposed to be able to counsel, (laughs) show them the error of their ways, put them on the right path. The truth is, Jesus had to learn things the same way we learn things. Jesus had to learn to eat with a fork, if indeed they did. (laughs) Jesus had to learn to drink from a cup. Jesus had to learn the things the natural way. He didn't have special understanding, God's omnipotence. 
He had set aside his omnipotence. He had to learn the same way we do. That's why this is talking about him being completed. Some things you can only learn by doing. My husband likes to say, you can't learn to swim from the living room floor. You can practice. <laughs> but you're not going to learn to swim until you get in the water. <laughs> Jesus got in our water. Jesus got into humanity so he would understand the weakness of humanity. Jesus was completely human and he learned what it meant to be human in the midst of the greatest of pain and suffering and what it meant to be tempted to handle things according to the natural man. Jesus knows what it's like to feel tempted to do stupid stuff. <laughs> it's not just us. <laughs> Thankfully, he never chose to act on his stupid temptations, but he says he was tempted just like us. He knows what it's like to feel tempted to handle things in your own ability. We can see this in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. I always like to think, Jesus liked girls. <laughs> Temptation. <laughs> he was completely human. <laughs> Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Not the throne of punishment, not the throne of anger, not the throne of wrath, the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word translated mercy can also be translated equally as well as compassion. And really, I like both of these words. Because if I have given in to my stupid flesh head and did, done something stupid, then I need to remember that my Father and my Jesus do not deal with me based on my stupid actions. I'm not going to receive punishment from God. I'm not going to receive what I deserve <laughs> from being stupid. Now, I might receive what I deserve from somebody on earth. <laughs> Say like if I were to get smart with an officer of the law, <laughs> I might end up in jail and that would be appropriate. <laughs> but even then, that's not my father punishing me. He's only interested in me learning from my mistakes so that I don't repeat them. So yes, he will let us reap what we sow, not to punish, but to train. I also like knowing that regardless if I have done something stupid or I'm just thinking about doing something flesh-headed, <laughs> he understands. <laughs> he understands my love for bacon. He understands my love for cheesecake. He understands. <laughs> he really understands what it's like to be me. For instance, he understands my frustration of not being able to make the government Stop doing dumb stuff. <laughs> and so because he understands, he has compassion on me. <laughs> he enters into my frustration with me and gives me grace to do what I actually need to do. His divine enablement through the Holy Spirit to do what he would do, which is to pray for our government. <laughs> but even then, I'm tempted to pray dumb stuff. Take him out, Jesus, just take him out. <laughs> if you can do that without hurting, that would be great. <laughs> he understands. <laughs> He's not going to kill them off because I think that way. <laughs> because he brings me back to my senses. Father, please take evil out of government and raise up righteousness. Raise up those who will listen. Raise up those who have family values. We can make a difference with our praying, believe me. So Jesus understands what it's like to be us. He understands perfectly what it is to be human, but he is perfectly human without sin, and he is perfectly God. So he is the perfect high priest. He can perfectly represent us to God and God to us, and he's the only one who could. Now, one of the questions some of the Jewish believers must have asked was, how can Jesus be a legitimate high priest? He's from the wrong tribe. <laughs> high priests were supposed to be from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So the writer of Hebrew then explains how it is that Jesus 
can have both a legitimate and a better priesthood. Hebrews 5, beginning with verse 1. For every high priest was chosen from among the people and appointed to represent them before God by presenting their gifts to God and offering sacrifices on their behalf. Since the high priest is also one who is clothed in weakness, he humbles himself by showing compassion to those who are ignorant of God's ways and who stray from them. For this reason, he has to not only present the sin offerings of others, but also to bring a sin offering for himself. And no one takes this honor upon himself by being self-appointed. That was their issue. Did Jesus self-appoint himself? That's not allowed. But God is the one who calls each one just as Aaron was called. Verse 5. So also Christ was not self-appointed, and he did not glorify himself by becoming a high priest. But God called and glorified him. For the father said to the son, the father said to him, you are my favored son, today I have fathered you. And in another scripture he says about this new priestly order, you are a priest like Melchizedek, a king priest forever. Again, God had purposely orchestrated the things in the Old Testament so that there would be types and shadows that they could look back in their own scriptures and go, oh, I never noticed that before. <laughs> and that includes the priesthood of Melchizedek. God knew that one day he would need to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus's priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood. So in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer tells the story of how Abraham had met the first Melchizedek after rescuing Lot and defeating the kings who had taken Lot hostage. When reading the story of the first Melchizedek, it kind of seems irrelevant. <laughs> this character just shows up out of nowhere, and his name means king of righteousness, and he's actually a king of a place called Salem, which means peace. So he's king of righteousness and king of peace, and he just happens to be a priest of the Most High God, when there was no order of priesthood that we were aware of. <laughs> so this guy is definitely planted by God in history's timeline and written about on purpose. God says they're going to need to know. They need a reference point. <laughs> so this priest brings bread and wine for Abraham, and then he blesses Abraham. Then Abraham gives him a tithe of all the loot that they had taken from the other kings. This was not Abraham's regular income. In fact, Abraham only provided for his men out of the loot. <laughs> he didn't take anything for himself. And the scripture only shows Abraham tithing this one time. I bring this up because for the most part, this scripture is used to try to put Christians under the Levitical law of the tithe. But this is specifically in scripture to show the Christian Jews that Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical law. The writer continues to make the case that because the tribe of Levi was potentially in Abraham's loins, that Levi, in theory, paid tithes to the Melchizedek priesthood. When Melchizedek blessed Abraham, it was considered evidence that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Try telling that to a Jew. Who's greater than Abraham? Nobody. <laughs> Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because the one who does the blessing is considered greater than the one who receives the blessing. So the whole point of this passage is the greatness of Melchizedek, his priesthood. It was the first priestly order and it was a superior priestly order. It was attached to faith and grace. It had nothing to do with earning God's blessing by giving to the priesthood. And God even gave his oath to preserve the priesthood, this priesthood. When God adds his oath to a promise, it means that that promise is good forever and it will never change. God will never change his mind about Jesus as our high priest. There will never be another way to get to God. There will only be Christ and him alone. But God never gave an oath to the Levitical priesthood or its priests because he knew the Levitical priesthood would only point to the greater reality of what Christ's priesthood would actually provide, which is oneness with God the Father and God the Son through the Holy Spirit. Christ's priesthood is powerful and effective, and it makes sinful men into holy and righteous men who will live forever by the power of an endless life.
Jesus' life. Jesus' life provides rest. The worshiper can live in the rest that comes by believing and trusting in the Son of God and His perfect, once-for-all sacrifice. But the Levitical priesthood never had the power to remove sins. Never. It was powerless to set a man free from the indwelling presence and power of sin. So God always intended it to come to an end. I think that may be why God had Melchizedek show up so early in biblical timeline, so that those who would find it hard to let go of the Levitical law and its prescribed sacrifices would be able to see just how far in advance God had planned for Jesus, the very Son of God, to come and to be once and forever our high priest, a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood has a perfect high priest. The Melchizedek priesthood has a perfect high priest. He's a new and different kind of priest from the Levitical priests. He's a priest that is fully human and who understands the weakness of man, but he's also a priest who is actually the Son of God and equal to God the Father in power and authority. A priest who is greater than all of creation and who sits enthroned above the heavens. A priest who is himself sinless and who never needed, never needed to bring an offering for sin. A holy priest who brought one single offering for sin, for the sin of the whole world. An offering that was so powerful and so effective that it never needs to be repeated. A blood sacrifice that was completely holy, completely innocent, and completely powerful and effective. But it's only effective for those who would let go of their Jewish heritage, let go of the Levitical law, let go of trying to earn their blessings from God. You had to enter into this relationship by faith in the blood of Jesus, the once forever perfect sacrifice that gives us a once and forever salvation, a perfect salvation. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Hebrews. It's gigantic. <laughs> it's just stuff full of how you have always planned to bring forth the Son of God as a once and for all sacrifice for sin. We thank you, Father God, that that's what you had always wanted, was to get mankind back to where he started, in personal relationship with you ruling and reigning over this world through your power and your wisdom and your goodness. We thank you, Father God, that because of Christ, we are acceptable. Because of Christ, we are holy. Because of Christ, we are blessed. Because of Christ, we have all that you have given to us through him. We thank you, Father God, for all that our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And we thank you, Father God, that we can choose. We can choose to celebrate the Passover, but make it about Christ. We can choose to celebrate the Sabbath and call it a Sunday. We can choose these things because it never takes away from who you are. All of these things were always only ever supposed to point us to the truth of your personhood, of your priesthood, and of your being our Savior. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.